0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: The FT.
2: Welcome back to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. This week, we'll be discussing Chris Hune's speech at the Liberal Democrat conference yesterday on his Green Deal revolution.
0: The Green Deal will be a revolution, the first scheme of its kind in the developed world, the most ambitious energy-saving plan ever put forward, a once-and-for-all refit that will make every home in Britain ready for a low-carbon future. No more half-measures going off at half-cock.
2: We'll be asking what this plan is all about and whether his words are more than just hot air. After that, we'll move towards the water and take a look at what tidal energy has to offer.
1: Tidal energy uses the gravitational force of of the moon, so as the tide moves in and moves out, we're able to harvest that kinetic energy and uh, dispatch it economically to the grid.
2: And we'll end this week's show with a look at Eurasian Natural Resources Corporation, otherwise known as ENRC. The FTSE 100 Kazakh Mining Company is embroiled in a legal battle with a Canadian miner First Quantum Minerals. We'll be looking at the details of the dispute and how it is drawn in some senior city figures. I'm joined in the studio by Fiona Harvey, the FT's environment correspondent, Will McNamara, the FT's mining correspondent, and we welcome our guest, Tim Cornelius, from the tidal energy company Atlantis. Before we launch into Chris Hune and his plans for a greener Britain, let's get BP up to date. On Sunday, the US authorities finally pronounced the well in the Gulf of Mexico, which caused the largest accidental offshore oil spill in the US effectively dead but the story is far from over for BP. The company faces several investigations in the US as well as potential legal claims. Bob Dudley, who takes over from Tony Haywood as chief executive next month, has a difficult few weeks ahead as he focuses on where the company goes strategically from here and how it can repair its battered reputation in the US. We will, of course, be keeping an eye on proceedings and bring you the latest news on BP and next week's show. So let's move on to our first topic today, Chris Hewn and his Green Deal. He used his appearance at the conference on Tuesday to champion the government's Green Deal, which promises to insulate houses across the UK and create thousands of new jobs. I've got Fiona here. Fiona, hello. Could you just tell us exactly what the Green Deal is all about?
3: The Green Deal is about making people more energy efficient. Uh, One of the primary focuses will be insulation and making people climate-proof their homes. And that means putting in loft insulation, which still... Lots of people don't have cavity wall insulation. And, of course, it's things like uh, windows, double glazing, doors, all of the things that are old housing stock. And Britain has the oldest uh, housing stock in Europe. All of the things that make it so inefficient in terms of energy and specifically heat.
2: Is this this a mandatory thing or is is this voluntary? It's
3: completely voluntary. No one is going to be forced to have insulation. But the point is to try and make it easier for people, to make it uh, more attractive by encouraging people to see that they can actually save money. And the, the people who will be charged with doing this are essentially the electricity companies, the energy companies, and they will be asked to support this.
2: Okay. Well, it sounds, sounds great in practice, or in principle, not in practice. Do you think it'll work? Well, the
3: only problem here is that something similar to this uh, has been an operation for uh, years now, people have had incentives. The upfront cost uh, of uh, getting your home insulated is subsidised, so it's quite low. Uh, it costs maybe you know a couple of hundred pounds for lost insulation in the average house. If you're on a, a low income or you're a, a pensioner, then you can actually get it for free, and it takes the uh, you know a, an afternoon for the average home. So the problem has been that although these incentives have been there people have not taken them up and the climate change committee in fact uh, was very very critical of this approach in a a report that it did a few months ago and what they were suggesting was that really you need a a completely different approach what you need to do is have sort of um, energy efficient uh, squads kind of you know going down street by street every street in the country They will kind of turn up on your street on a Monday and they're hoping by the Friday to have every house in that street insulated. And if, if you're if you're not answering the door and saying yes, I'll have my home insulated, they'll want to know why. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah. it's the Green Squad. It's quite a fun idea. And they're saying that it's only an approach like that that will work.
2: Presumably, though, I mean Chris hune and his team know all this, and they must they must have seen the report from the Climate Committee. Um, just, just wondering, therefore, why is he using such emotive language? I mean, I think he was using you using the word. Um, oh, you said it's a revolution. Revolution. It's yeah. This is it's, the it's biggest a one, thing that big biggest thing ever in britain yeah. why why this sort of you know that rhetoric and hyperbole uh, he's a politician uh,
3: <laughs> i think you know the, the the onus is really on the government to try and ensure that they're doing something about this don't forget that we have serious targets to meet the government has got to meet a target of reducing emissions by 34 percent by 2020 and the, uh, it's got to meet European Union targets uh, as well. Mr Hewn has also been very keen on proclaiming that this is a source of green jobs. Mm-hmm. I think we were told yesterday it's about uh, 250,000 jobs would be created by this. Um, if that's true, that's that's uh, a pretty major achievement.
2: And have they put any sort of um, timing on any of this at all? Have they sort of set a target as to how many homes they want to see properly insulated by... 2015, 2030? That's not
3: clear at the moment. We do know that if heating alone is one of the the biggest sources of greenhouse gas emissions, and it's one of the hardest to do anything about. In terms of uh, electricity, you can get uh, electricity obviously from renewable sources. But when you look at heat, there aren't that many renewable sources of heat. So you've really got to try to just cut down on emissions from heat by insulating.
2: We'll keep watching this one. Thank you very much. Let's now move on to our second topic for today, tidal energy. Tim, I wonder if you could just start by building a picture of where tidal energy fits in with the rest of the energy industry in the UK.
1: Tidal energy is going to become a, an important part of the renewables fuel mix, fuel mix in the future. Tidal energy, as you're probably aware, effectively just uses the uh, the gravitational force of the uh, of the moon, so as the tide moves in and moves out, uh, we're able to harvest that kinetic energy and uh, dispatch it economically to the grid. Right now, the industry is in a transition period. It's probably been through 10 years of intensive uh, R&D, and it's just starting to enter the, the commercialisation phase. The easiest way to think about tidal technology is it's ostensibly like installing an underwater windmill. In August this year, uh, we unveiled uh, what is the world's uh, largest single-axis rotor turbine, which we uh, have just successfully deployed at the European Marine Energy Centre up in the Orkney Islands in Scotland. It's a one-megawatt turbine, so it's enough on baseload to power roughly about a 1,000 homes.
2: And and what's the cost of the energy? I mean, that's always the big question is, you know, people used to think it's it's cheaper getting all out of the ground. You know, what's the cost of this renewable energy, specifically tidal?
1: Tidal, like any renewable energy, needs uh, needs scale in order to uh, to drive cost efficiencies. Uh, right now the target for, uh, for tidal is to be cost comparative with offshore wind and we believe with the, uh, the growth trajectory that ultimately our goal is to be uh, you know, price competitive with onshore wind within a 10 year period.
2: What are, what are the people who are getting power from that turbine now? How much are they paying for their electricity?
1: Uh, well right now the only turbines that are dispatching to the, uh, to the grid uh, can be characterised as large test turbines.
2: And just, just looking, we've obviously got a new government here in place in the UK, a coalition between the, the Conservatives and the Lib Dems. I just wondered what you thought of the regulatory framework in the UK. Is is it still as it was before? Are you worried about it? If, if so, what aspects of it?
1: It's probably too early to tell um, whether we have the the same level of support in our particular industry, being the marine power industry, as we enjoyed over the last couple of years. Uh, that said, all the indications are that uh, the same level of regulatory support is going to be in place. We've certainly seen that uh, that the support previously has encouraged Investment, and certainly in our company and within the industry.
2: Is one of, one of the problems connecting to the grid? I mean, how does that work with with, with the turbine?
1: Just like uh, any other form of power, regardless of whether it's thermal or renewable, we require connection.
2: And, and how does that actually work physically? I mean, how do you actually connect it?
1: It's just via a large export cable. So you can imagine just a subsea cable, um, which effectively runs all the power onshore. And then the challenge is to take that power onshore down to the commercial loads. So um, you know we have uh, we've had you know wonderful developments recently, like the announcement of the Builidene line going ahead it's a large transmission line that's the sort of thing that's going to open up that capacity to allow all the projects whether they're wind or marine power to come online and transport our power from the uh, you know from north down south
2: just in terms of the cool. energy mix in the UK I just wondered what your' Forecasts for for the contribution of tidal energy um, towards supply in the UK compared with things like solar and wind.
1: It's well documented that there is enough marine power in the UK. Um, certainly, in fact, just in the uh, the north of Scotland, of power, you know, up to about 15% of the uh, the UK's power requirements. I think in the reality. Um, on the build-up, we're probably looking at a couple of percent over the next uh, the next 10 years, and I think that, that would be a, a realistic but achievable goal.
3: What's happening with the Severn tidal project? Because that is potentially the biggest tidal project in the UK, and obviously that project has been you know underway for, for quite a long time. The government's been consulting on it and, and so on. And that could potentially produce up to, I think, about 5% of the UK's Electricity. I know that's not something that you're involved with directly, um, but could you just update us on where we are with that project?
1: As you say, it as uh, it continues to go through a consulting process. Obviously, there are a number of environmental issues that uh, that sit around a uh, a tidal barrage. Uh, as you quite correctly pointed out, Atlantis is involved in free stream tidal. Um, whereas uh, the Seven Project... Sorry, that, that means...? That means effectively it's like installing a windmill underwater. We don't require any civil works, we don't dam, we don't have to create uh, any form of head differential, which uh, something like the Seven Project will require. So uh, whilst you're quite correct, it does have the potential to provide an enormous amount of uh, of energy and it is very capex-intensive up front. Uh, the long-run marginal cost of generation uh, of tidal barrage is uh, is obviously quite attractive... But there are certain environmental issues that are, are difficult to, to overcome. And uh, we certainly hope that that creates an opportunity for free stream.
2: Um, thanks very much. Let's move on to our third and final to discussion for today ENRC. Well, it's, it's obviously a very complicated story. And just for those people who haven't, who are not up to date on it, can you just explain to us what the dispute is about?
0: In September 2009, First Quantum Minerals, which was in many ways the most prominent foreign invested mining company in the Congo, was operating a project that was closed down by the government. It disputed the reasons that the government cited for uh, this copper project being closed down. And then, uh, long story short, it continued to have wars with the government that it lost, and this culminated over last month, in fact, with um, its its largest project in the country by far being seized uh, and then sold.
2: And the ENRC, well, they effectively spotted an opportunity, realized there was a dispute between the Congolese government and First Quantum, and just approached the Congolese government and said you know will buy the assets is that what they did
0: the original asset that was uh, seized last year is a quite good copper project and um when the government said you have violated uh, certain conditions and we're taking this away from you without compensation. They sold it to someone else who then sold it to someone else. It was for sale. You know, uh, the the government had authorized the sale. Um, The government had sold it to someone. ENRC, uh, a FTSE 100 mining company, saw that it was for sale and bought it as part of a suite of assets in the Congo that by most measures was remarkably cheap and discounted, uh, which probably factors in the sort of Almost toxic levels of political risk that had um, attached to these assets since all this since all this drama uh, had unfolded around them, but you know from enrc 's perspective it uh it saw a, a good asset to buy at at a hell of a good price and um and I think their attitude is why not
2: it 's not just a dispute between two mining companies. It's also got some very sort of interesting um, city people involved. I think Mm -hmm. Sir Richard Sykes, who used to be the chief executive of GlaxoSmithKline, um, head of the Wellcome Trust, if I've got that right. Um, He's on the board of of ENRCs. Is is that right?
0: Yeah, no, he is. He's the senior uh, um, non-executive independent director. A lot of what this dispute has done has has kind of focused a a spotlight on these really um uncomfortable deals where everyone can claim that, that that the transaction happened legally but it leaves a bad taste in almost everyone's mouth. This 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 idea of something being s- strictly speaking legal but not quite right. And um and that's why Sykes's role has come under scrutiny um by people across the city, uh across the mining investment community. Kazakh Meese, a rival Kazakh miner that in a complicated way is also the biggest shareholder in uh ENRC uh di- did not agree uh with this decision it disapproves of it but it's also not selling down uh, and so, you know, the power of someone like um, Sir Richard Sykes is to be in this company that, let's face it, has only four or five important shareholders. There are three three founding shareholders uh, that each own about 15 percent. So you're coming up toward half. And then the Kazakh government owns over 10 percent and Kazakh Misa owns over 10 percent. All these, uh, you know, institutional funds in London that are squealing bloody murder about how could this possibly have happened ethically, morally. Well, you know, in, in strict terms, they're not very influential. They're just not big on the shareholder register. So, um, you know, to, the power of someone like Sir Richard is really to say, you know, look, I represent the sort of moral heft of the, of the city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your shareholder register is taken up by people who will always... You know have all the power, but I'm here to advise you on things that uh might kind of violate the spirit, if not the letter of the law. Um, on the contrary he, he's he's come out fighting and 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 absolutely defended down to the bone uh this transaction, which has um in a lot of ways uh expanded the controversy.
2: It sounds like a story we need to keep watching. um thanks very much, will. And that's all we have time for today. We'll be watching very closely to see how BP copes with the continuing investigations as Bob Dudley prepares to take the helm. And all that's left for me is to thank my guests in the studio, Fiona Harvey, Will McNamara, and of course, Tim Cornelius. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye.
1: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.